Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now the united states trying to hang on to second they should get the silver medal but lezak is closing a little bit can the veteran chase him down and pull off a shocker here here comes lezak unbelievable at remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks i'm james and as i get out of the pool and towel off let's check in with our anchor today wish i was as good of an anchor as jason lezak no diaz back with you once again but we do have an incredibly special guest with us here today. It is the shit talker himself, the whatever the word for French is, and talk de merde. Uh, I am not Elaine Bernard. <laughs> Elaine Bernard, please introduce yourself. Although I do, when when James was saying that, I was thinking so much about the, the color commentator saying, he's tightening up, and Bernard just slowly falling back a little bit. Oh, God, it's so good. It is me, the very special guest, Xavier. Not an Olympic gold medal swimmer or a silver medal Brent swimmer who wrote a check his mouth can't cash. Just a regular, very special guest. No need to parl any mare today. We are all here together. Uh, Xavier, out of, out of curiosity, I was just wondering. Doesn't happen to be anyone making memories for you right now, is there? So, have either of you heard of the ARCA series of race car driving? Never once in my life. I'm about to, baby. <laughs> the ARCA series is the main stock car racing series of the Automobile Racing Club of America. And it's essentially a minor, minor league for NASCAR. It used to be loosely affiliated with NASCAR. Now it's owned by NASCAR to the point where NASCAR has their the Cup Series, then they got the Infinity Series, then they got the Truck Series, and then ARCA is at the bottom which is, you know, more semi-pro, but acts as a feeder league. Normally, most people would not really care about ARCA, except for ARCA is going to have an interesting new driver competing in 2023. This driver, 37-year-old rookie, pretty old for making their competitive, you know, stock car racing debut. They have done open-wheel racing in the past, uh, but they're more known for um, starring in such fair as Malcolm in the middle. Or Big Fat Liar. You said 37-year-old rookie. I bet it's fucking Frankie Muniz, isn't it? It is Frankie Muniz. <laughs> he is going to be a full-time driver for the ARCA series, driving the number 30 Ford for Rhett Jones Racing. His first race will be at Daytona on February 18th. And I now am going to watch super minor league stock car uh, racing to watch Frankie Muniz compete and i have just sent you the hype video that he posted on twitter yes the, the nascar arca series with 37 year old frankie munez driving the number 34 and i imagine he's projected to finish in the middle of the pack i hate puns yes. but I'll, I'll give you that one does Is that frankie count as a pun that's that's just a reference i, I guess so is frankie the one that has severe amnesia and doesn't remember acting. 
So he said that's not actually true. Because I remember I had looked into this a while back. He said he's, he's had a bunch of concussions, I believe from race car driving, but he actually had some sort of really bad migraine type thing that kind of got misinterpreted. Where it talked about him not remembering a lot of things that happened 20 years ago as him having amnesia. I also don't remember a lot of what happened 20 years ago. So, you know, maybe I have amnesia too, but he has had some health issues and uh, apparently had amount of concussions and stuff like that. But all of that seems overblown, at least according to him. Is that a more or less interesting second life following Malcolm in the middle than Brian Cranston becoming one of the great dramatic actors of our time? I mean, I think it's more impressive at least, right? Because at least, I mean, acting is acting. Comedic acting is different than dramatic acting. There's some crossover there, but like acting is acting. This is like if, if Michael Jordan decided to become like an anesthesiologist or something. Fair enough. It would be like if Patrick Dempsey decided to start racing Le Mans. Oh, wait, Patrick Dempsey races in Le Mans. <laughs> there was one really fucking wild thing that I, I saw while looking at Frankie Muniz's uh, racing love. In 2001, when he was 15 years old, he drove the pace car at Daytona and met Dale Earnhardt shortly before he entered his vehicle, never to exit it alive again. Okay, well, there's the clarification of which Dale Earnhardt it was. Thank you. Yes. Imagine that being the first thing you did with professional racing was drive the pace car at the most infamous Daytona 500 in modern history. Well, clearly it's sat with him for about 22 years until he finally felt comfortable to return to that realm. <laughs> I, if it were not for NASCAR's negligence in hiring somebody who is not even legal to have their driver's permit to drive the pace car at Daytona, would the events have transpired which led to the death of Dale Earnhardt? We're just asking questions. I've <laughs> also probably said worse and darker things on this podcast. Well, speaking of speaking worse, worse and, and dark, damn it! <laughs> speaking of worse and dark things, Diaz, is anything making memories for you right now? So, it's not worse. It's not darker. There may be some dark meat involved, maybe some white meat. But what I'm just thrilled to see this week, when, when you're on the internet long enough, as the three of us are, you get to see the progression of memes, you know, remember when it was just like foul bachelor frog and it was like a picture and there's like a caption above and below. And like, and that was the peak of like meme culture. Memes have come so far. Memes have grown up and we've got to see the memes literally grow up. And what we got to see this week is diurnist. I'm saying that correctly. Diurnist. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. Diurnist Colin is an offensive lineman. He's a freshman at Lake Erie, which is division two college in Pennsylvania. But he just recently signed his first NIL deal. The Ernest is signed with Popeyes because you may recall there is a meme. And anytime you try to describe a meme in words, you just sound like the biggest fucking loser. But there's the kid at the Popeyes. He's kind of just like looking forward nervously and then looking over with side eye at the camera. Just very clearly uncomfortable. Like, And it's kind of used in the context of like, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Like, can you believe this? This is kind of the, the usage of the meme. Well, that's him. That kid who was about nine or 10 years old at the time that the meme was made, now a college freshman. 
He is an offensive lineman for Lake Erie, and he is now the latest NIL signee of Popeyes. So props to Popeyes for reaching out, capitalizing on this, helping to further uh, the earnest, uh, not just his athletics, but also his academics as well, helping with that. And really just, it's, it's the kind of moment that people who are terminally online have been waiting for for a long time. And it's just beautiful to see that, yes, he is successful. He is playing ball. He is making memories. And he is, dare I say, one day, a guy. Not there yet. We'll have to see where the career falls. But Dyernus Collin making some, some memories for me. He is. And the only addition I'll make is he reached out to Popeyes first. I want to give him credit for being assertive and recognizing that, that there was potential there. Because you know what? Yeah, man, get that chicken money. I will say it is of the fast food chickens. I do think it is number one. That is because, admittedly, you don't have that many Royal Farms up there in Philadelphia. So I'll allow it. Right. Well, I mean, even then, like I, as a Philadelphian, don't classify like Wawa's fast food. It, it's like almost its own category. All I'm saying is Food and Wine magazine declared that Royal Farms had the best fast food chicken in America. Okay. Well, if, if they have an award, then who am I to argue with those people? <laughs> it's spot, like Justin Tucker's their celebrity endorsement. How can you possibly argue with that? I don't trust food awards, especially after reading the article about that fancy restaurant Noma in Denmark. That has to have been the inspiration for the movie The Menu, where they served grilled reindeer heart on a bed of pine needles, and then also meticulously crafted beetles made out of random edible objects and food and sold it for like 60 grand, but also physically abused all of their staff and paid interns nothing for insane hours because fine dining is unsustainable. Damn, does Salt Bay run this kitchen? Overpriced food, horrifically mistreating workers. It just seems like it's right up his alley desperately trying to get a picture with Messi, that's no longer applicable to the other one. I just think we should still clown on Salt Bay for that. You know who else we should clown yeah, on? A number of MLB front offices. It's the holidays right now. Near the end of the holidays. It's still the holiday season. <laughs> There's still a lot of traveling is what I'm getting at. It's MLK day. Exactly. You know, you still got to get ready for your day of service. And like I said, we do a lot of traveling. I don't think anyone has traveled quite as much as the contract rights for MLB player Lewin Diaz. I would like to catch you all up on what he's been doing since Thanksgiving. It's been an extended holiday period for our boy Lewin Diaz, who on November 15th was designated for assignment by the Miami Marlins. November 22nd, he is claimed off waivers by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Eight days later, he is designated for assignment. A couple days later on December 2nd, he is claimed off waivers by the Baltimore Orioles before promptly on December 21st being designated for assignment. Actually, two days, though, after that designation, they decide to trade him to the Atlanta baseball team for cash considerations. Atlanta, five days later, on December 28th, right after Christmas, designates him for assignment, at which point he is claimed off waivers by the Baltimore Orioles, who just this week on January 11th once again designated him for assignment. So, like, it's it's clear what's going on here, right? These teams like him, but not enough to save a spot on the 40-man form, so they're trying to sneak him through to the minors. I get the thought process. But at this point, isn't it already clear that even just within this collection of three, four teams, none of them are going to let him safely make it through to the minors. Like, if you're claiming him, you need to just claim him. He's also been playing winter ball this entire time for the Estrellas Orientales, so, like, he hasn't had to move. I was going to say... Yeah, he hasn't had to move. Let me clarify that. But his contract rights have been moving all up and down the East Coast. And I mean, 
somewhat into whatever you want to call Western Pennsylvania. A less expensive version of Carlos Correa, perhaps? Well, to be fair, he has actually been on the rosters of all of these teams, whereas Carlos Correa never really left the Twins. There is one other group of people that I want to acknowledge making memories for me. We want to go down to Houston for just a moment. One of the greatest examples of tank sabotage since the Sticky Bombs and Saving Private Ryan. The morning of January 8th, Houston was in the driver's seat for the number one overall pick, which certainly Houston fans and the Houston organization that doesn't actually have to go down on the field at any point very much wanted. They were going up against the Indianapolis professional football team. Pretty easy opponent with their, I guess, sort of still a head coach, Jeff Saturday. And Lovey Smith said, Bryce Young, who? You're going to fire all my guys and me after the season? Well, fuck you. On our final drive, we're going to convert a 4th and 12, a 4th and 20, and go for two for the win, giving, by the way, the number one overall pick to his old employers, the Chicago Bears. And I just love it because, Diaz, you've watched some tanking teams, we can say it. I'm watching a tanking team in San Antonio, and I've watched a whole lot of terrible Orioles recently. But I, I do like remembering that like, we can say the franchise is tanking, it feels important to never act like the teams are tanking, man. Players don't go out there to lose. Coaches don't go out there to lose. Maybe organizations do, but teams don't tank. And I personally love to see that. I hope very much that Lovey Smith gets another chance. Man, fuck the Houston organization. That's that maybe the second most morally bankrupt professional football team right now in the NFL after the Cleveland Browns. The crazy thing is Lovey didn't deserve to get fired. And he still deserved to be fired more than his predecessor, David Culley, right? Yeah, absolutely. Against like horrible circumstances with a rookie quarterback that the franchise itself probably didn't really even care for in Davis Mills. Turned that team into a very respectable team two years ago. And then they fire him. They bring in Lovey. And truthfully, I don't know what you could have expected to go any different this year. So it is absurd, but it is also lovely no pun intended, to see the Texans go out there. And, I mean, the, the thing that you, you didn't mention, James, that just made it all the funnier is, like, it's not like the Texans just had, like, an impeccable last drive where they made these incredible plays that the Colts couldn't have done anything about. Fourth and 12 was a great conversion down that left sideline to Brandon Cooks. Fourth and 20, I've never seen a worse play by a defensive back, and this is the 10-year anniversary of the mile high miracle when the safety completely lost to Kobe Jones, that safety had infinitely better situational awareness than the safety for the Colts on the play. I forget his name, but all you need to do is knock the ball down, dude. You just have to knock the ball down and your team wins. And he goes right through his hands. Like they weren't even there because he tried to intercept it. They might have done better if they had a head coach, but unfortunately they haven't had a head coach for eight weeks. So that's the Indianapolis professional football team for you. Lovey Smith with just a giant middle finger. And Diaz, as I understand it, giant middle fingers might be kind of on topic this week. They're extremely relevant. So obviously in sports, there's yin and there's yang, right? There cannot be heroes without villains and there can't be guys without counterparts. So what we're looking for this week is individuals whose careers, legacies cannot be removed from one other individual or maybe one other team that 
for one reason or another, they always seem to show up against them or whenever they are remembered, they're remembered in the context of like, oh yeah, that's the guy that did this to that team or that guy. No, I want to talk about today is a boxer who is certainly best known for his rivalry with one of the all-time great boxers, but who has an incredible career on its own right. I want to rank off some of the accomplishments that this guy has that have nothing to do with his rival. He is variably ranked either the second greatest Mexican fighter or the 15th best pound-for-pound fighter of all time by BoxRec, kind of like your, your pro football reference, whatever. He is only the third native Mexican-born fighter to be a world champion in four different weight classes. Four different weight classes? Four different weight classes. Okay. I, you have me sold now and I haven't even heard his name. He is, along with Floyd Mayweather, because he was the opponent in this fight, the first non-heavyweight not named Oscar De La Hoya to headline a pay-per-view fight which generated one million or more buys, which speaks to how much everybody in the boxing world couldn't get enough of the fights put on by Juan Manuel Marquez. Juan Manuel Marquez. Okay. Juan Manuel Marquez is born August 23rd, 1973 in Mexico City. Uh, more specifically, he's born in the barrio of Iztacalco, which is known as one of the roughest neighborhoods in all of Mexico. Still today, it is the most densely populated barrio in all of Mexico. Not a lot of good stuff goes on there. A lot of Marquez's friends growing up fall into gang life. Obviously, the cartel is so prominent down there, and a lot of his friends are either ending up in jail or dead at a young age. So, like we see so many times in a situation like this, you know you have two options, really, to be able to get out of the hood. You can focus on your education, which Juan Manuel did. He was very well educated. He said he always liked numbers. Uh, He did very well in school. Uh, He actually became an accountant at first worked in various Mexican government agencies uh, before he turned to focus full-time on boxing. I love that this is now like the inverse of our previous leaving for a higher calling. Like does accounting and and bureaucracy for a while. I was like, actually, I want to go beat the shit out of people for others' amusement. Instead of banging my head against the wall looking at Excel, let me bang my fists in the other people's heads and get paid for it. Crazy. Crazy if he can like, you know, make those numbers work. As we will find out, he is able to do that because the other thing that you can focus on to get out of poverty is athletics. So he started training boxing at the age of eight. He and his brother, Rafael, were both inspired by seeing their father's old you know, memorabilia from when he was a fighter in Mexico. Rafael also turned out to be a pretty damn good fighter. There's one point that Juan Manuel and Rafael are both ranked within the top 10 active pound-for-pound rankings. Do we have any similar sibling pairs that pull that off? The only one I can think of offhand would be the Klitschkos, Vitaly and Vladimir. You also have the Charlo brothers today would be another example of guys who are able to do that. But I don't even think both the Charlo brothers would have been considered top 10 pound for pound. So, I mean, boxing very much runs in this family. And before... I I get too far into the career. I just want to kind of give you like a snapshot of Marquez as a boxer. He's, you know, not just very studious in, you know, looking at the books and like his actual education. He's a very well-trained and like well-studied fighter as well. He can fight a whole bunch of different techniques. He's very technically sound 
and he prefers to be a counter puncher. So what he's looking for is like, all right, what is this guy trying to do? Is this guy trying to establish his jab? Okay, I can counter by this. Is this a guy that's trying to set up his right hook? Okay, then I can try to counter like this. But with that being the case, he's still able to initiate the action as well. So the fact that he's able to, he can either fight on his back foot as a counter puncher, or he can fight coming forward. It makes him a matchup nightmare for just about anybody that he fights. With that also being the case, because he can fight any style against any fighter, his fights are some of the most entertaining fights. If he has an aggressive guy, he's going to set him up and get some stunning counter punches. If it's a guy that's trying to sit back, he has no problem bringing the action to him. Certainly not one to just sit back on his back foot. Like a, like a Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather is always a counter puncher. But Marquez, if he's in a situation where like, hey, I'm not going to sit here and let the crowd boo. If somebody needs to start the action, I can do that too. So a very entertaining fighter. His professional debut, he makes May 29th, 1993. And as you would expect, fight ends in the first round. It ends because he was disqualified. Marquez loses his first professional fight via disqualification to Javier Duran. And he must have a great PR team or maybe records just don't exist going back this far. I can't find anything that says why he was disqualified. Could have been something as simple as an accidental headbutt. It could have been a low blow, but he was disqualified within the first round. Not to be dissuaded, he's going to go on a real strong run after this. His next 29 fights are going to be victories. And granted, as we've gone over on this podcast before, early boxing fights, especially for a fighter that is figuring to be anything, you're going to throw a few tomato cans at him. You're going to throw guys at him that don't really belong in the same ring. But three of those 29 straight victories are against future champions. Agapito Sanchez, Julio Gervasio, and Alfred Cote. All three would go on to be championship boxers, guys that Marquez was able to beat along the way. After these 29 straight, this sets him up for his first shot at a world title. He's going to fight for the WBA featherweight title on September 11th, 1999. Uh, He's going to lose a unanimous decision to Freddie Norwood. But not going to be discouraged. He runs off 11 more straight after this, which now puts him at a professional record of 40-1. and He is known within boxing circles at this point as the best boxer in the world without a title. Anytime you get that honorific in like any sports, it's, I mean, it's great. It is in many ways a pretty backhanded compliment. Very backhanded. Like I remember growing up, it was like Phil Mickelson was that for so long in golf. Oh, he's the best in the world that doesn't have a major. And you could tell it ate at him. And maybe it ate at Juan Manuel Marquez a little bit because now at 40 and 1, he's going to get another chance to go out there and claim a world title. On February 1st, 2003, he gets a fight against Manuel Medina. And this is going to be the start of a theme that we're going to notice in Juan Manuel Marquez's career, which is. So often in boxing, if you want what you deserve, you can't leave it to the judges. you got to finish it right then and there. He gets a TKO in the seventh round against Medina, and he claims his first world title, the IBF featherweight title. He's going to win his next two fights by stoppage, which brings him now to a 43-1 record, which is going to set up the first of one of the greatest rivalries in all of boxing. To me. 
all fights put together, it is the best rivalry in boxing history. Not just because of how good the action is, but kind of what I was saying earlier, where styles make fights. Marquez being the counterpuncher, he's going to put on the best fights against the guy that's more active coming forward. And one of the most active fighters coming forward of all time, current Filipino politician, but former incredible boxer, Manny Pacquiao. I'm so glad this transphobe is about to get punched in the fucking face. Please tell me more about someone beating up Manny Pacquiao. Well, it's, we're going to be a while until the, the justice, as, as you wouldn't hope to see it, is going to come up. We're hey, gonna get... no matter what, he's getting punched. There's some amount of justice for me. I don't have to get hit in the fight at all. I can just see Manny Pacquiao's face get bloodied. Early in their first fight, May 8th, 2004, round one, the action's already good. Back and forth, to my eye, I think Marquez is getting the better of the action. But what Manny has at this point, he has a lightning fast left straight. So Manny fights from... A southpaw position, so right foot, lead foot. Left hand is his backhand as the dominant hand. That's where most of the power is going to be. He gets a straight left through on Marquez that just immediately drops him. There was no buildup. There was no combo. Oh, he's hurt. This punch comes through. Marquez gets immediately floored. He doesn't appear hurt, though. And this is at the 130 mark of the first round. He gets back up. They go back to trading. There's some good exchanges. And about 15 seconds later... That same straight left knocks him to the ground again. Similar thing. Seems like he's not really hurt. Gets right back up. Probably just caught him off balance. And then Pacquiao unloads a bit of a combo on him before finishing it with the left straight. For the third time in round one, Juan Manuel Marquez is already on the ground. The thing is, there is no three knockdown in this fight. In a lot of fights before, there's been a three knockdown rule. And very, very often, I would say the vast majority of the time that you see three knockdowns in one round, after the third knockdown, even though it's not a rule anymore, the ref is usually still going to stop that fight. This ref did not stop the fight because, again, an experienced ref's going to see he's not really getting hurt. He's just getting knocked down, which probably sounds insane to our listeners who are not particularly versed in combat sports. But I promise, guys get knocked down without being hurt all the time. And that's what happened to Marquez. So he beats the count, survives to the bell, and he's able to go back to his corner. The HBO commentary has pointed it out, and if they can point it out, it's very obvious to his trainers. The issue is he has no head movement. He's keeping his head on one straight plane, and he's basically a sitting target for Manny Pacquiao with these lefts. They make the adjustment, and the rest of the fight, Marquez truly dominates. Pacquiao, to my eye, Wins maybe two more rounds the rest of the fight, but it's mostly a defensive masterclass by Marquez. He's landing the cleaner punches. Pacquiao may be more active, but he's not landing as solidly as Marquez is. Marquez is very clearly in control of the fight. We go the distance. The first card is announced 115 to 110 for Pacquiao. Second comes in 115, 110 for Marquez. And the third card comes in 113, 113. You might be thinking in your head, why did the first two add up to something different than this last one did? The reason that happened is judge number three is a moron. The round one that Pacquiao won, it's standard practice. If a fighter wins a round, you score that round 10-9 for that fighter. If they also got a knockdown in the round, you score a 10-8. Two knockdowns, 10-7. Three knockdowns, you score a 10-6 round. 
Judge 3 scored round 1, a 10-7 round, not a 10-6 round. So he inadvertently gave an extra point to Marquez. But this isn't something that they can just like, oh, hey, simple mistake here. You know, this is very much like a Roberto Di Vincenzo. Once the score is on the card and it is signed, doesn't matter what number got there or how it got there, that's the number. What a stupid this judge is. What a stupid this judge is. But, you know, from your perspective, James, and from the perspective of anybody who wants to see Pacquiao get his ass beat, what should have been a split decision victory for Pacquiao is now instead a draw. So, first one in this in this legacy is in the books, 0-0-1. Marquez is going to go on to win his next two fights before he's going to go to, in my opinion, one of the toughest things you can do in boxing is to go into somebody else's home country and expect to like win that fight. He goes to Indonesia to fight Chris John, who is an Indonesian boxer, a world champion. He goes into Indonesia. He goes the distance. He was never going to get the decision. So he loses this fight to Chris John. And he decides to take a step up and wait. Uh, and he's going to fight another Mexican legend. Boxing fans will know well, Marco Antonio Barrera. This is the first time that Marquez will headline a pay-per-view. So Marquez and, and Barrera are headlining this pay-per-view. He wins a pretty comprehensive decision. Um, it's unanimous across the three judges. 116-111, 116-111, 118-109, which gives him the super featherweight WBC title. So we are now at world title number two. Not number two, class number two. He has claimed other titles in the featherweight division. This is the second distinct weight class that he has a world title in. He has one successful defense against Rocky Juarez, which is now going to set up the rematch that we've all been waiting for. Juan Manuel Marquez against Manny Pacquiao 2. This is going to be the second pay-per-view that he will headline along with Pacquiao. It's another dead-even fight. I, this fight to me is much closer than the first fight. The difference in a close fight like that is often going to come down to a, were there any fouls? Did somebody get a point deducted for a low blow or anything like that? Or B, was there a knockdown? In this fight, there was a knockdown. In the third round, Manny Pacquiao, again, did not hurt Juan Manuel Marquez, but caught him with that left straight, knocks him to the ground, and this ends up being the difference on two of the cards, which gives him a split decision victory over Marquez. The stats on this were incredibly close. For jabs, Marquez landed 42 of 201. To Pacquiao's 43 of 314. So Pacquiao only lands one more while throwing 113 more. For power punches, Marquez not only outlands him 130 to 114, he did it while throwing only five more punches. So 130 of 310 for Marquez, 114 of 305 for Pacquiao. But Pacquiao gets the split decision regardless. After the fight, Pacquiao is asked if he will fight Juan Manuel Marquez again. And he says, quote, I don't think so. This business is over. Dear listener, we will get to more of that business. But first, we're not immediately able to get that trilogy match. He's going to move up to lightweight to fight Joel Casamayor. And this is going to be his first fight at lightweight. And one of the things that the, the casual fan may not appreciate about going up and down in weight in boxing. When a smaller fighter goes up in weight, he's naturally going to lose some quickness, first of all. He will gain some strength from the additional weight. But he's going to lose some of his quickness. And the other thing that's going to happen is he's going to be fighting people that are just generally larger, taller, more reach. 
So his first fight at lightweight against Joel Casamayor, he's really struggling. He gets dominated in the first four rounds because he can't kind of figure out how to get inside on his jab. Round five, he starts to figure it out with his counterpunching. Uh, and he comes back to get a knockout victory. In round 11, this makes it the third weight class in which he claims a world title. He's going to defend that title against Juan Diaz. It's a fight that goes very similarly, gets dominated early, figures it out as the fight goes along. He finally scores a knockdown in round nine. Diaz gets back up, gets knocked back down again. And at that point, the ref called it. So he has successful defense of his title. And this is going to set the stage for another fight we've been really waiting for. Juan Manuel Marquez against Floyd Mayweather. So this fight, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil the lead. It ends as a loss for Marquez. But there's some very important context that we need to consider when we look at this fight. The fight was to be fought at a catch weight of 144. Now, 144 is not a weight division in boxing. You go from 140 to 147. But this was basically Mayweather saying, hey, I'm 147. You're 140. You come up a bit. I come down a bit. Marquez isn't able to get all the way up to 144. He only weighs in at 142. But Floyd weighs in at 146. So neither of them got to the weight. <laughs> neither of them got to the weight. But it's like, it's if you're under, you're fine. If you're over, you're fucked. But right before the weigh-in, Floyd arranged a deal with Marquez, said, hey, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'll give you 600000 to just fight me anyway. And Marquez, like, look, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. That's fine. So they do the fight, and it's a pretty decisive victory for Floyd pretty much the whole way. Never really hurts Marquez, but it's just clear, like, he doesn't have to wait to get in on side on him. The additional four pounds, which... I mean, to you and me, it's just four pounds. To a professional boxer, four pounds is a shit ton of weight. And he just never really gets in the fight. But still speaking to the popularity of Juan Manuel Marquez, when I alluded earlier that he had the first fight to eclipse one million, this this is that fight. This is the first pay-per-view to not feature either a heavyweight or Oscar De La Hoya to eclipse one million buys. Marquez feels that in coming up to this weight, he lost too much of his speed, kind of what I was talking about earlier. So he wants to go back down, and he's going to get a rematch with Juan Diaz. I'm going to dominate this fight. Comprehensive, unanimous decision. He's going to win two more fights before we finally get to Marquez Pacquiao 3. In the lead-up to this fight, big controversy was that Juan Manuel Marquez hired a strength and conditioning coach Angel Nickname Memo Heredia, back to his real name, Hernandez. Sorry, wait, is that Angel Hernandez? It is Angel Hernandez. <laughs> it's, it's a different Angel Hernandez who is just as much of a shithead for different reasons. He had been busted previously for supplying steroids to the U.S. track and field team, most notably Marion Jones. So a persona non grata in the sporting world, but... Marquez, you know, really doesn't care what people think, whatever. I like this guy. I'm going to hire him. Very important to put in for context here, too. Marquez never tests positive for anything at any point in his boxing career. So he could have just liked the trainer. And you're going to hire somebody that got busted previously. It would be pretty stupid if you tried to do the same thing with them again, I think. And as we established, Juan Manuel, smart guy, educated guy. So I like to think that he wouldn't have done that. In this one, they put on another classic fight. This time, there's no knockdowns, but 
to the fans watching at home and to the people in attendance, this was the masterclass of Juan Manuel Marquez's career. If you think of it like in the chess kind of perspective, he's one move ahead of him at every point. He knows what Pacquiao wants to do before Pacquiao does it. He's counterpunching effectively all night. And it doesn't fucking matter. It's boxing. Corrupt things are going to happen. Pacquiao gets the decision. This is immediately met by Beers being hauled into the ring by all fans. Raucous booze. The Rain Magazine would call this the robbery of the year for 2011. But the only opinions that matter are those three judges. And two of those three judges said that Pacquiao won. So Pacquiao would get the victory. But we don't need to have sad endings. We can have have great things too. We can have history made. Right now we're at three different weight classes that Juan Manuel Marquez has claimed the world title in. And on April 14th, 2012, he's able to go back home to where it all began. El DF, Distrito Federal, Mexico City. He is in Mexico City Arena for a fight with Sergei Fedchenko for the WBO light welterweight title. And it is a clinical domination. Almost sweeps the scorecards clean. Claims the WBO light welterweight title. So along with Jorge Arza and Eric Morales, he becomes the third native Mexican-born fighter to claim a world title in four separate weight classes. Our happy endings don't have to end at just these things. We can also come back to a person that we fought three times already. (laughs) And we can fight him a fourth time. In combat sports, almost everything is a trilogy. It's so rare that you get a fourth fight that I cannot even think of other examples of there being a fourth fight in a rivalry like this. But there's enough juice here. They're both still relevant enough. That's the other thing for two fighters to stay relevant this long. And there is the juice of, oh, there's some controversy in those two previous decisions to go to Pacquiao. Can Marquez finally figure him out? There's enough interest there to put together... Finally, a fourth fight. Does not disappoint. This might be the most exciting of the four fights that they have. In round three, Juan Manuel Marquez finally sends Manny Pacquiao to the floor for the first time in their fights. Knocks him down with the right hook. But Pacquiao gets back up. Pacquiao recovers. More back and forth action the rest of that round and into round four. In round five, Pacquiao, as he has already done four times in the fights that these two have had, Throws that left straight, and out of nowhere, a Juan Manuel Marquez, who does not appear injured and does not appear hurt at all, is sent to the canvas. Marquez does struggle a little bit getting up this time, but he beats the count. He's fine. He survives the rounds. As we enter round six, this is the pinnacle of everything that Juan Manuel Marquez has been building up to his whole career. He's known as the best counterpuncher in boxing. He's a tactical fighter. He figures out what his opponent is doing. And he counters it. In the sixth round, we're getting towards the end of the round. Marquez is sticking Pacquiao a little bit. And he knows every time that I've started to get something against him before, he throws that fucking left straight and I end up with my ass on the canvas. So we're under five seconds left in the round at this point. He sees Pacquiao throw his lead right jab. He knows the lead right jab is trying to set up that powerful left straight to come down the chute. And as soon as he sees the right jab, he immediately sidesteps and he throws what's known as a check hook, which is kind of just like it's just a tight 
not looping like you might think of a traditional right hook, but just a quick check right hook, turn the torso, turn the weight into him. And this check right hook catches Manny Pacquiao flush on his jaw, unconscious, immediately. His body is limp, practically through the turnbuckle. The ref doesn't even get to a count of three before it's like, okay, this guy's like legit unconscious. Like he's not getting back up. The third time's not the charm, but the fourth is Juan Manuel Marquez finally gets his victory over Manny Pacquiao. We love to see it. With a great counterpuncher, to me, it, it's it's called the sweet science. And that to me is what, is what is so beautiful about it because like we as viewers may not see the punch because of how quick and how precise it is. Ryan Garcia is like another modern boxer who he is very well known for his counter left. And you literally don't see it sometimes. Manny Pacquiao certainly didn't see the check right hook coming. Manny would eventually come back too. Manny would fight again. Manny would go on to win more championships. But that night, that fight, that moment, that check hook, he's finally able to to vanquish the demon and to become a champion. The only thing left after this is to go for more history. So he's going to move up one more time to try to become the first native Mexican-born fighter to win a world title in five different weight classes. He's going to go against Tim Bradley. And he's going to lose another controversial split decision. Both fighters afterwards very adamant that they won the fight. Mark has landed 30 more power punches throughout the entire fight. That's equal to about two or three power punches around. That's not nothing. I think it's more than enough to indicate that he probably was the better fighter that night. Regardless, he gets the loss. So his next fight is going to be an eliminator bout against Mike Alvarado for the right to basically fight for that same championship again. And he dominates it, which would have set up a rematch with Tim Bradley. But Tim Bradley already had to fight a rematch with the champion that he took that title from. And he lost that rematch. So we're now back to the original title holder, who is now obligated to fight Juan Manuel Marquez. Manny Pacquiao. He is the mandatory contender to fight Manny Pacquiao for yet a fifth time. Boxers fight too long because they have nothing else that they can do in their lives, even if they become a senator of a country of 300 million people. Maybe they should stop punching each other in the head after they can afford to do something else. Well, Xavier, I have some good news for you. While he was the mandatory contender to fight Manny Pacquiao, Manny Pacquiao may have stayed in the ring for some years after that. I think Manny Pacquiao would still fight about six more years after this. But after that fight against Mike Alvarado in 2014, he doesn't officially retire. He's still going to train. He's still going to, you know, oh, I'm I'm in negotiations. He had talks with Miguel Cotto that came very close to, to fruition, but they just never quite came to pass. So finally, on August 4th, 2017, Juan Manuel Marquez officially retires from the sport of boxing. Again, upon his retirement, he was the third Mexican boxer in history to be a world champion in at least four different weight classes. There's now four of those. Canelo, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a pretty good boxer. He would headline eight separate pay-per-view bouts. Boxing Rec has had him ranked as high as number 13 all time and as the number two Mexican. Currently ranked number six greatest Mexican fighter of all time, but has been ranked as high as number two. 
And across his 64 professional fights, retires with a record of 56 victories with 40 by knockout to only seven defeats and the one draw with Manny Pacquiao. Never knocked out in his entire career, which is also, I think, very impressive to say, especially when you consider that he fought Manny Pacquiao four times and only one of them got knocked out and it was Pacquiao. And that's also presumably a, a big reason why he can still do stuff like accounting or anything with his brain function. Yeah, he, he can still do a decent amount of things with his brain function. Today, he is still a frequent contributor to uh, the ESPN Deportes program, Golpe a Golpe, Punch for Punch, for you non-Spanish speakers. And he's also a member of the Partido Revolucionario Institucional in Mexico. They are described as a center-to-center-right party. But they're also affiliated with Socialist International, so maybe they're cool? I don't know. I don't know enough about Mexican politics to speak further. But the only thing that I can speak to is that when we're looking at boxing, I always come back to I think Mexican fighters are the most entertaining fighters. They are ready to go to war, but they're also very tactical. And they're very smart, and they're very proud, and they're very tough, which is what I think you see on display in Juan Manuel Marquez. They're also ones to, to hold grudges and to seek vengeance. Sometimes it won't be on the rematch. Sometimes it won't be the third time. Sometimes he might have to wait till the fourth time. But he does finally secure that. Finally gets his knockout over Pacquiao. The most stunning knockout maybe in boxing history. It's certainly right up there in terms of we're watching a fight and there's no dramatic buildup. And now the fight is over. And especially just at that level. Before I digress too much further, I know for certain Juan Manuel Marquez es un nombre, and I hope that he can be a guy. Yes, once again, we're doing our best to alienate our non-Spanish speakers. And speaking of our non-Spanish speakers, Xavier, I'd love to hear who your particular rivalry is based <laughs> on today. <laughs> so as far back as anyone can remember, aka the introduction of electronic timing, the man who wins the 100-meter dash at the Summer Olympics, is considered the fastest man in the world. Except for one time, where due to just a tad of jingoism, some extra steps were needed. So today, I want to talk about the story of Donovan Bailey. Donovan Bailey, born December 16, 1967, in Manchester Parish, Jamaica. The fourth of five sons, He was responsible for taking care of the family's chickens, goats, and pigs before going to school. He showed great athletic ability from a young age, and at the age of 12, he ended up immigrating to Canada with his father and his older brother, O'Neill, settling in Oakville, Ontario, which is about halfway between Toronto and Hamilton. O'Neill quickly becomes a track star, winning four provincial titles in the long jump. Donovan ran track two, And he was fast, but he never really committed to it because his first love was basketball. He played basketball throughout high school and then eventually went to local Sheridan College, where he also played basketball, but focused on school first and graduated with a degree in business administration. He then begins working as a property and marketing consultant for an importing and exporting clothing company. Does really well for himself. Uh, By the time he's 22... He already owned a house and a Porsche 911 convertible. Very, very successful businessman. And he still is to this day. Very smart man. It's funny. He, he said in an interview later on, 
that he could have done some sports stuff after school, but that wasn't what he wanted because he wanted a nice house, money, and fast cars. I was taught to work hard, real hard work on my own, so he wanted to focus on that first. And then, in 1990, Bailey's at home, and he's watching the 1990 Canadian Track and Field Championships. And he realizes that in high school, when he wasn't really trying that hard, he had beaten some of the guys who were competing. So he's like, oh, maybe I should try sprinting again, you know, at least part-time, see how I feel about it. So, in 1991, he wins the 60-meter race at the Ontario Indoor Championship. And he catches the eye of Canadian track officials who invite him to represent Canada at the 1991 Pan-American Games in Havana, Cuba. He's part of the 4x100-meter relay team and gets a silver medal. Goes back to Canada at the Canadian Track and Field Championships in 92, finishes second, getting the silver in the 100-meter. But he's still not invited to come represent Canada for the Olympics. In 1993, he wins silver in the 200 and bronze in the 100, and also only gets named as an alternate for the relay team for the 1993 World Championships. So he goes to Stuttgart, Germany as an alternate, essentially complains about not being, you know, not getting a chance to, to, to race at the World Championships and thinks that he's, he's good enough to do it. So an American coach there by the name of Dan Pfaff ended up saying, okay, show me what you got. After watching him run, he said, I've never seen anyone run so fast who looked so bad. So he invites Bailey to train with him for a couple months. He's just as raw as, like, ground beef. He said he wasn't fit and had terrible form. After three months of coaching, weightlifting, sprint training, and improved diet, he cut one-third of a second off of his time, which in track is an incredible amount. He... Improved so much that he represents Canada in two international events in 1994. The Francophone Games in Paris in July, he wins the gold medal in the 4x100 relay and the silver medal in the 100. And then the Commonwealth Games in Australia in August, where he gets, again, gold with the 4x100 relay team. 1995, he then sets a Canadian record, non-wind-assisted record, breaking the 10-second barrier with a 999. He beats his own record just a couple months later at the Canadian Track and Field Championships, the 9-9-1. Now, you know, with his momentum, he goes to the World Championships as a favorite and becomes the first Canadian to ever win gold in the 100 meter with a time of 9-9-7, along with another gold in the relay. It'd just be a technicality, but all this could be for Canada. Like, has there been any discussion of him, like, representing Jamaica at all? Is he, like... I know that Jamaica has a lot of track stars. Is he not able to get at that level, or is it just like he's a naturalized no, he, Canadian? No, he, he's, he's naturalized Canadian. He feels okay. very Canadian. Right. There was never any discussion on representing Jamaica. At this point, with you know world title under his belt, he is considered a favorite for the Olympics. And so he gets selected after winning his third consecutive national title in the 100. And on July 27th, 1996, in the Atlanta Olympics... Bailey wins the Olympic 100-meter title with a new world record of 9.84 seconds. During the race, he hit a top speed of 27.1 miles per hour, which was the fastest top speed ever recorded by a human being at the time. I cannot bike that fast on flat land. 
I it simply cannot get up to that on like a machine. Yeah, so just imagine you're biking at the height of your powers and just some guy runs past you. It would be the most demoralizing thing <laughs> that has ever happened to me, ever. So this was a major boon for Canadian track, which hadn't fully recovered from the Ben Johnson, Carl Lewis rivalry that ended with Ben Johnson having his gold medal from the 1988 Seoul Olympics stripped for doping. So this was a big thing for them. At this time, Bailey's only the second person ever after Carl Lewis to hold all the major titles in the 100 meter concurrently. World champion, Olympic champion, and world record holder. Six days later, he completes the 100 meter 4x100 double again, anchoring Canada to their first ever 4x100 gold with a national record of 37.69 seconds. After this, you know, based on all historical precedent, Plus the fact that he reached the highest top speed known to mankind, it should have been pretty indisputable that he was the fastest man in the world. The USA and their NBC Olympic broadcast team didn't think that way, though. You want to guess who was the uh, host of NBC's Olympic coverage in 1996? Bob Costas? It is indeed Bob Costas. Hasn't he been the host for like 30 years? Yeah, Bob Costas opined that American Michael Johnson, who had just won gold in a world record 19.32 seconds in the 200 meter, and also became the first and only man to win both the 200 and 400 at the same Olympics, was actually faster than Donovan Bailey. He said that uh, the records that Johnson broke were more historic and had stood for longer, so it was a better accomplishment. But also, that 19.32 divided in two is 9.66 which is faster than Bailey's 9.84. Obviously, this isn't how running works because over a 200 meter, you have more time to reach top speed and then stay and top, top speed, speed. maintain yeah. top speed without you know, having to have gone from a, a low start, get up to top speed, and then cross the finish line. Anyone who knows track knows this isn't how things work. I officially no longer feel bad for when Bob Costas got that really bad case of pink eye during the Olympics. When Donovan Bailey caught wind of what Costas said, he called him out as, quote, a person who knew nothing about track, talking about it with a lot of people listening. The media, the track media, the sports media, dominated by U.S. publications at the time, and, you know, right after a U.S.-held Olympics, continued to praise Michael Johnson as the best track athlete, and really kind of ignoring Donovan Bailey. After the AP named Johnson World Athlete of the Year, Bailey called them out, stating that it was, quote, the total ignorance of the Americans. Sports Illustrated responded with an article titled, quote, Bailey's Fine Wine, and that is W-H-I-N-E, where they stated, by what measure beside his own could Bailey possibly be considered more outstanding than Johnson? Oh, I don't know. Having the record in the 100-meter dash? Eventually, this turns into a full-on advertising war between Canada and the U.S., with people buying out spaces and things like USA Today and other newspapers where Canadians saying, Donovan Bailey is the fastest man in the world, and Americans saying, no, it's Michael Johnson. So, what do you do when this happens? Gotta sell things on the track. After a bunch of negotiations, it was decided that they would meet in the middle, as Diaz had 
so eloquently spoke earlier about fighting at a not official weight class. They would have a 150 meter race. That was 75 meters of straightaway and 75 meters of curbs at Toronto's Sky Dome on June 1st, 1997. Both runners would get $500,000 for appearing and whoever won would get an extra 1 million. The lead in to this is an absolute mess. The company that's hired to run it doesn't know what they're doing. Eventually the IAAF, the you know, International Track Association, refuses to even sanction this event with their president, Primo Nebbiolo, saying, quote, this is not sports as entertainment, but more like something out of a circus, and we're not interested in it. On Friday, two days before the race, uh, Bailey examines the track, and he's very upset about how the layout is. Claims that the radiuses of the turns are off, that actually 85 meters is on curves and not 75, which means... More curve, better for Johnson, less straightaway uh, for him. He decides to run anyway, but he does put out a press release blasting the organizers for their, quote, deceitfulness, egregious miscarriage of the competitive spirit of the competition, and saying that he'd be running the race under mental duress. In extended Gyniverse news, the very next day, the IAAF and Mary Decker Slaney for doping. It's all coming full circle. Well, no, it's not full circle. We're only running 150 <laughs> meters here. It's very clearly not full circle. True, true. It's uh, like three-eighths of a circle. That, does that math check out? It's a 400 around, isn't it? I'm not, I'm not a math person. I've a lot of things, Xavier, but fractions and shit, I got. <laughs> we, we can call up John Urschel to confirm this if you all need. <laughs> so on Sunday, race day, more than 30,000 spectators show up at the Sky Dome what both CBC and CBS were billing as a competition for the title of World's Fastest Man. After a very weird undercard of races and other types of track and field competitions, and a performance by the Blues Brothers, for some reason, it was time for the main event. This is, again, a, a very weird thing in that this should only last 20 seconds, the thing that everyone came to see. But Bailey starts off brilliantly, and he's ahead of Johnson on the turn, where everyone had kind of assumed that Johnson would be ahead first, and then if Bailey was going to catch up, he'd be on the straight. Johnson, while still behind, pulls up at about the 110-meter mark. He grabs his quadriceps, slows to a stop, and squats on the track in distress. Near the end of the race, Bailey looks back at Johnson and waves for him to come on, thinking he had just quit. Bailey crosses the finish line, the only one of the two to do so, and while celebrating with fans and reporters, he looks at the TV camera and said, Oh, there was never any doubt in my mind that I was the fastest man on the planet, and this just proved it. They said I couldn't run a corner, but I always said this is exposing Michael Johnson and the weaknesses in his race. This is just preparation. We're going to run a couple twos this year, and I plan on meeting him in his event. He didn't pull up. He's a chicken. He didn't pull up at all. He's just a chicken. He's afraid to lose. I think what he should do, we should run this race over again so I can kick his ass one more time. Right afterwards, they go to a press conference, and he continues along these lines. It's obvious that the gap was going to get bigger, and my butt was going to get smaller and smaller as I pulled away from him. He knew he was going to get hammered after the first 30 meters, so he, he knew he had to pull up. This race was never going to prove who was the fastest in the world. All he was going to do was shut up Michael Johnson. I mean, 
I thought like like Jamaicans are supposed to be chill, Canadians are supposed to be polite, and Donovan Bailey no, is just no, every single stereotype directly on its head and in his trail. He he has said since then that uh, he probably should have toned it down a bit, but quote it was the testosterone. So you know he he had the juices flowing, uh, and he was he was, he was pretty dude. pissed about you know being denied his rightful status as fastest man in the world for about a year. It did turn out that Johnson did actually hurt himself and ended up missing out on world championship qualifying. But then the IAF changed their rules anyway to invite previous champions because they wanted him there, so it didn't really matter. <laughs> There's a lot of people carrying a lot of water for Johnson here. Yeah, that's the thing. There are, there are a lot of people to this day will say that Michael Johnson was the story of the Olympics because it was an American thing and he had broke the records. He wasn't the fastest man in the world. And that's the, that, that's the thing that Canadians and Donovan Bailey were, were hung up on. At the 97 World Championships, Bailey and Canada defend their 4x100-meter title, but Bailey does lose the 100-meter to Maurice Green, you know, who would go on to then win the 100-meter at Sydney in 2000. Unfortunately, this is pretty much the end of Bailey's athletic career. He got started pretty late compared to most competitive track athletes, you know, not really getting into it until into his 20s. But then in 1998, he ruptures his Achilles while playing pickup basketball. It was his first love. He, you know, he's always got to have time to ball, but that was the end of it. Since then, he's been a very successful businessman. Uh, he has a sport injury clinic. He has a sports management company. He was inducted into Canada's Sports Hall of Fame twice, both as an individual and as part of the 4x100 team that won gold in 96. Uh, he's been a track commentator. He was named an officer of the Order of Canada. He's still doing like really, really well for himself, uh, even if his true track peak was just a couple of years. But he will always have that win over Michael Johnson he talked about Michael Johnson not being able to see his ass as it got further away from him. And I thought that was just awesome. In that whole story, I love Donovan Bailey, but I also really like that Dan Pfaff, you know, Michelangelo would talk a lot about how he wasn't necessarily sculpting when he came across a block of marble. He was working to free the sculpture that was already in the block of marble. And for Dan Pfaff to like recognize that there is this guy has the capability to be the fastest human being in the world, despite by his account, just having the worst form, the, the worst like <laughs> physical fitness, all of these knocks against him and to craft someone that could kick ass, take names. And also just, as you said, have an increasingly small ass as he left his opponents in the dust. Uh, it, it takes two to tango. Love Bailey. Love his coach Faf for that. That's a great story. I already had a lot of love in my heart for one Donovan that turned away from basketball to go to another sport. And now McNabb is joined by Bailey. What a presentation. Well, speaking of presentations, James, I would love to hear what you have. Love to share that with you guys. I'll start by mentioning that we've, I feel like we've touched on the Cold War a couple times recently. And much like my guy today, I decided to just fully dive into that. Now, of course, the Cold War called that because it was never an all-out war between Western powers and, and Soviet powers and their allies. It was fought with a lot of proxy battles on many different fronts. Now, many of these were very literal land battles. 
I want to talk about a particular battle that was maybe not naval, but certainly a lot more aquatic. And the protagonist today for our proxy fight is a guy by the name of Shirley Babishoff. And Xavier seems incredibly excited to hear about Shirley Babishoff. I am very excited. Beautiful. Well, let's get things kicked off with Shirley. To do that, we got to go back to Whittier, California, January 31st, 1957. That is where she is born. And funny enough for our Cold War story, our red, white, and blue hero is actually the child of two second-generation Russian immigrants. <laughs> they are Vera Slivkov, her mother, a stay-at-home mom, and Jack Babishoff, her father, who at the time was earning money for the family as a machinist for the Bethlehem Steel Company. But back in the day, he'd lived in Hawaii. And when he was in Hawaii, he was a swim instructor. And so he made sure that all of his kids swam. That's the oldest brother, Jack, Shirley, and then the two younger siblings, Billy and Debbie. And for the record, all of them are incredibly good swimmers. Billy is a college star with UCLA. Debbie wins a 1500 meter national championship in 1989. Jack is going to be an Olympic medalist in 1976. We will get to those Montreal games later. Uh, unfortunately for Jack, he is not even the most impressive Olympic swimmer in his family. That is going to be Shirley. One thing I'll mention, part of the reason that all of these kids might have excelled so much at swimming is because their father, Jack, was just an absolutely terrible person, horribly abusive to all of them in, in like pushing them into the swimming. And also, we should mention, sexually abusive to both his children and others. In fact, as recently as 2015, he got a restraining order for stalking at the age of 86. So really didn't let anything get in his way of being a terrible person. He sounds like a worse Marv Moranovich. Yeah, no, he's like, there's some articles where it's like before she's kind of really come out with all this and she's talking about a conflicted relationship with her father. And then there's a certain point after like 2016 where she's like, oh no, he's a piece of shit. And that is, I mean, even at the age of 10, that's kind of how she feels. Swimming is her refuge from this. Swimming is what she throws herself into. She starts getting really serious in high school. And she gets to Fountain Valley High School, which at the time is the largest high school west of the Mississippi by attendance. Got about 4,300 students. That's a lot. Yeah. And fun fact, one of them is Michelle Pfeiffer. She's just a year behind <laughs> Shirley. With 4,300 students, imagine it's pretty hard to stand out. A pretty good way to stand out, though, is to go to the Olympics at the age of 15. And that is exactly what she does in 1972. She goes to the Munich Games. The swimming all happens before the bad stuff. So let's talk about the swimming first. Uh, she makes the final in all three of her individual events, the 100 meter, 200 meter, and 400 meter, all freestyles. She only swims freestyle, not a very diverse swimmer. Unfortunately for her, Australian Shane Gould is just on one this year. She takes gold in the 200 and 400 meter. And then a fellow US team, 16-year-old Sandy Nielsen, completely shocks the field by taking the gold in that 100 meter. So Shirley settles for two silvers and a fourth place finish in that 400 meter. Does though, along with Nielsen, get two golds on the two relay teams that she always participates on. That's the four by 100 freestyle and the four by 100 medley in which she swims the freestyle lap. This is an incredible Olympics for swimming. 24 out of the 30 events for both men and women are world records and the other six are all Olympic records. So just to put it in perspective, there's... Uh, an absolute tear going on in the sport right now. And once that's all done, as we've mentioned before, there is also a tear wrist attack. Nielsen, Babishoff, and Gould are actually all together in the Olympic Village as they kind of huddle for safety. Thankfully, all of them are safe. No harm comes to any of them. And so 
She comes back to high school as a four-time Olympic medalist with two gold medals and two silvers. Next year, takes Fountain Valley High in 1973 to their first ever California State Championship. This is also when she begins her FINA World Aquatics Championship career. 73 is the first one she participates in in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, going behind the Iron Curtain. A couple of her teammates get individual goals. She unfortunately settles for silvers once again in the 100 meter and 200 meter and also both relays. Two years later, she makes her next appearance at the FINA World Aquatics Championships. She does finally get her first two individual golds in the 200 and 400, but again, on both those relays, she's settling for silver. She's been settling for silver a lot here. And in both of those 100 meter races, in all four of those relays, the person or the team that is finishing ahead of her is the other half of our conflict. I don't want to necessarily call them villains, but certainly the antagonists. And that is the East German women's swim team. Damn those East Germans. East is my least favorite direction in which to German. <laughs> <laughs> so that really tickled me. So after World War II, just to like really quick explain the concept of East Germany, the Allies carve up Germany once Hitler and the Third Reich are defeated, and the Soviet Union's portion of it becomes the German Democratic Republic. We know it better as East Germany. It is not one of the Soviet socialist republics in the USSR, but it is similarly concerned with its national image as part of this larger communist project. And that really ramps up with the erection of the Berlin Wall in 1961. 1961 is also the year where a person's going to come to power. And if there's any true villain, it is this guy. And that is Manfred Ewald, who becomes the minister of sport. Ewald was a former member of the Hitler Youth. And then he got older and he went on to just be a full-on normal Nazi. And then as soon as the Nazi party fell, he just jumps right into the East German bureaucracy and starts working there for the next couple decades. Ooh, Nazis. Hey, quick controversial take. We hate Nazis here. In 1969, nice, he does get the clout to pass an initiative called Leistungssportbeschluss, which is a, <laughs> it is a competitive sports resolution where basically sports are now exclusively about Olympic and national glory. So they break sports into like three different tiers. There's the big Olympic sports, gymnastics, athletics, swimming. In the winter, you got figure skating and ice hockey. There's the lesser Olympic sports where they understand they're going to take a little bit of a step back, but like they'll still get funding and stuff. And any sport that's not in the Olympics might as well no longer exist in East Germany. In 1972, this is a big moment for them because it's the first time they ever finish ahead of West Germany on the medal table. The two countries are competing independently at this point. They've been under the same banner for a tiny bit at the beginning of their existence, but they're two different countries now. And this is a really big deal. Everyone's like, how is this nation of 17 to 18 million people competing so fiercely with all the big dogs? The answer is drugs. It's always drugs. The answer is always drugs. The answer is always drugs. And while this had already like somewhat been the practice in East Germany, 1972 is like Ewald's proof of concept to all of his higher up. Look, I've had some of our athletes doping and look how well we're doing. What if we made all of them do it? And you were certainly encouraged to dabble in doping. From like 1974 on, it is not really a choice. In 1973, when we had those Belgrade ones, some whispers start happening, particularly about this East German women's swimming team. One thing to East Germany's credit, part of the reason that they pump up in particular something like their women's swimming team is because 
many of the Western countries were not investing in women's sports, and many of the Soviet countries had already been doing that. So it was natural for them to kind of pump them up against a weaker field. But people are noticing that they are, yeah, I guess we can say pumped up a little bit in that second straight World Aquatic Championships. The East Germans get 10 out of 14 golds, and there is also amongst their ranks a distinct competitor emerging who's going to kind of be our avatar of the East Germans. That's Cornelia Ender. But I want to clarify again, I do not consider her the central villain. I really don't consider any of the athletes the central villain in this. This is really about two guys, Manfred Ewald and the sport ministry's medical director, Manfred Heppner, who, despite everything that I have against Manfred Mann, these two have become my least favorite Manfred men have I, <laughs> as I've done the research for this because they're administering unknown amounts of chemicals to kids as young as 10. Most of the children are not aware that they are being doped up constantly. They're just being told, yeah, here are some vitamins for you. What they'll often do before competitions is they will test all of the athletes. And if anyone tests positive, they'll just pull them out of competition and tell everybody, including their teammates, oh yeah, they just came down with like a mystery injury or illness. They weirdly go to jaundice a lot as the illness that the kids have. That's one that you can tell. You can physically tell from looking at someone if they have jaundice. It, if you've sequestered them from the rest of their team, maybe not so much. Now, where are they getting these drugs, you might ask? Why, they're getting them from the very own state-run pharmaceutical firm in East Germany, Genifarm, which is completely dedicated to nothing but steroid research. That is its reason for existing as essentially a government agency. Those block countries have been doing it for years, man. <laughs> it's what they do. So their, their very first chemical that they synthesized in 1961, the first original product, it's an anabolic steroid called chlorodehydromethyltestosterone, oral turbinol, if you want to call it that. And their entire Olympic empire is built on this drug right here. Because testosterone is a component, there are some notable side effects in particularly teams like the women's swim team. Cornelia Ender, for instance, is often described as ox-shouldered, and there's a lot of other similar phrases and descriptions being levied at these East German women. One thing we can say in Cornelia Ender's defense, she says she did not knowingly take anything, which like, yeah, sure, I mean, almost none of them took anything knowingly. Her dad was a very high-ranking military official. If he didn't want her to get doped, he probably could have pulled the strings to say, no, she's the one that stays clean. We don't really have a way to know about her. Nonetheless, it is a completely open secret that if not the entire team, then at least the vast majority of the team is just doped the hell out. So this is the climate as we head to Quebec for those 1976 Montreal Olympics. So when Shirley gets there, everyone is hyping up this rivalry between her and Cornelia Ender. And like we said, it's an open secret. This kind of becomes the breaking point for Babishoff, at least in terms of keeping quiet. Speaking of keeping quiet, the East German team was literally told to keep quiet a lot of the time and not talk too much when they were traveling internationally. A story to illustrate the point why, Babishoff talks about when she and her teammates went into the locker room at one point and assumed that they had walked into either the wrong locker room or that they had co-ed locker rooms at this Olympics because they just heard all of these deep voices talking. And then they turned around the corner and it was the East German women's swim team. Uh, real quick, we should mention, this is the Olympics where her older brother, Jack Babishoff, does manage to get a silver medal in the 100-meter free, losing to Jim Montgomery. It is a different Jim Montgomery, but still Jim Montgomery. On that side, 
It's still U.S. winning a lot of the time because we've been investing in that sport for a long time, but not so much in the women's game. And so it is a very different story as we turn back to Shirley. She starts her program off with a very impressive freestyle leg in the 4x100 medley. The team sets an American record. They take silver behind Cornelia Ender and the East Germans. The next day, she has a much poorer showing in the 100-meter freestyle. She falls all the way to fifth. Cornelia Ender takes the gold. The day after that is the first of the distance freestyles now, the 400. Cornelia Ender does not participate, so Shirley Babshoff comes through, sets another American record. There is another East German swimmer, though. This one's Petra Thumer. She does go ahead and win the 400 meter. Cornelia Ender takes the gold. Just two days later, the 200 meter, despite Shirley Babshoff setting another American record. And then three days after that, one last distance one, one last American record for Shirley Babishoff, and one more silver behind Petra Thumer. So at this point, in five of her competitions, she has placed second all of them to East Germans. Even the one she didn't play second, it was still won by an East German woman. It is now July 27th. It is the last day of the swimming competitions in the Olympics. And after these four silver finishes, she has an hour and 45 minutes to turn around after that 800 meter and prepare for her very last event. This is an event where she didn't even compete in the heats for it. She had a woman named Jennifer Hooker take her place for the qualifying races. But now we are going to come to our main event, the 4x100 free relay. This is actually the women's 4x100 relay, the last race of the entire swim program because, you know, our programmers were smart to know this is the main attraction. This is what everyone's come to see. In 1972, the US women set that world record, three minutes, 55.19 seconds. Babishoff and Ender were competing in that race for their respective teams. They're the only two that are left. Now that is still the Olympic record, but the German women have taken it down all the way to three minutes, 48.8 seconds. So no one's picking the U.S. It's not like there's even when you go to ESPN, that one person who's being a contrarian, you are laughed at if you think the U.S. women or anyone have a chance against them. They are immune to Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I mean, they've been alive at this point, and I'm sure Skip Bayless had an absolutely atrocious take about this like he does about everything. But the U.S. team of Babishoff, Kim Payton, Wendy Boglioli and Jill Sterkel, they do not care remotely. Ender leads off for East Germany. She's no longer the anchor as she was in 72. She's now their first racer. She matches up against Kim Payton, and Cornelia Ender is very, very good. She gives East Germany a one-second league. The next leg sees Wendy Boglioli shave about 0.7 seconds off of that. Her hands are kind of right at the leg of the East German swimmer at that point. And then Jill Sterkel, by 0.01 seconds over Cornelia Ender, runs the single best leg in the entire 4x100 relay of the race, giving Shirley nearly a full second of a lead as she comes in. Shirley dives into that pool, and with all of the frustration, the expectations, all of those heavy silver medals just weighing down on her, she flies down the lane, and East Germany finally gets a little taste of their own medicine, not the drugs, but like the figurative medicine, setting a world record by more than three seconds and still Damn. losing by 0.7 seconds to the victorious American squad, who obviously set a better world record. With the exception of, in the 200-meter breaststroke, a Soviet, Marina Koshevaya, this is the only gold medal that the East German women's swim team does not win in the 1976 Olympics. Take that, East Germany. And if you take you know, the Soviets and East Germany together as like the Eastern Bloc, 
This is the only gold medal that they do not win. And it wraps up the swimming program. It's an incredible crowning achievement. It is kind of the triumphant end to Shirley's competitive swimming career. But it's not the end of the story. Yeah, it's a bit of a Pyrrhic victory. She has four silvers to the East Germans in these games. In fact, in all of her international competition at this point, 10 of her 13 silvers are behind East Germans all during this period of Leistungssportbeschluss. <laughs> Could you just say that another two more times just for me? Leistungssportbeschluss. Leistungssportbeschluss. I had to practice that a lot. I-, I want you to get the use out of it, and I also enjoy it very much. Speaking of talking out loud, Shirley's ready to start saying some things. She's ready to start pointing out obvious facts that everyone should be able to see in her opponents. Hey, they have a lot of body hair. They have really huge musculature that is unlike all of the rest of the female swimmers. They have incredibly deep voices. I'm just calling a spade a spade. But with all of these losses building up, everyone loves a winner. Not everybody loves a second place. Second place is the first loser. If you ain't first, you're last. Okay, Ricky Bobby. <laughs> Given this, she is dubbed by the media Surly Shirley and really kind of looked down as like not being able to accept the outcome of the competitions. She steps back. Once her amateur status is done, she does get finally some money for all this. She gets a four-year $80,000 promotional contract from Arena Swimwear. Coaches swimming for a while at colleges after like trying to swim and go to UCLA for a year before just deciding that's not for her and dropping out. She very briefly coaches for the South Korean national team, but she just says that she could not bear to see the treatment of these swimmers by their coaches. So just so we're being equal here, terrible things can be happening to young athletes in capitalist countries too. It's not just the communists that are doing this. Eventually, She settles into a quiet and relatively reclusive life as a single mother of her son, Adam, and she's working for the post office in Orange County as a mail carrier. It's like, this is just her life now. She puts swimming behind her and is just happy to be doing her thing. I want to touch on Cornelia Ender for one moment. Whether or not she was taking chlorodehydromethyltestosterone prior, she refuses to take any further steroids at this point. And so she is swiftly cut by the team. Manfred Ewald and Huppner say, get the hell out of here. And she's now haunted by like the Stasi, the East German secret police for years. It takes her more than a decade to like get a visa to leave at all. Also kind of ruins her life because again, the true villains are the Manfred men. For a while, they make out pretty damn well. In fact, in 1983, the IOC gives Manfred Ewald their highest honor, the Olympic order for his contributions to the sport. He is able in 1988 to retire as the minister of sport with all of the accolades that come for his many decades of success with the East German teams. And he even maintains his position as president of the country's Olympic committee all the way up until 1990 when that country does not exist anymore because the Berlin Wall falls and East Germany as a whole falls. And this is when, after this, the records get unsealed, lips start to get loosened. And in 1993, that is the first time that official evidence of the secret police, those Stasi, supervising the doping of roughly 10,000 athletes during this period of (laughs) over nearly 30 years. Evold, for what it's worth, is completely defiant. He publishes an autobiography called Ich war der Sport, which means I was sport, where he denies all wrongdoing, says no involvement. 
He has a quote at one point that says, communists do not murder people, which, hey man. What? <laughs> I consider myself pretty far to the left, but like objectively, communists have murdered people. <laughs> I listened to a hundred episodes of the Russian Revolution from the Revolutions podcast by Mike Duncan. Communists have murdered a lot of people. People yes. murder people. People murder people. I would people. not make any sweeping statement. You can't say that, that communists have never killed anyone. Exactly. It's just insane. He and Hepner are finally brought to court in 2000. I want to give some credit to Manfred Hepner. He does apologize at the very least, which Ewald never does. The court does find against them for roughly 160 plaintiffs that had finally brought this case to court. So there's some level of vindication now for Shirley, finally 24 years later, that, hey, you were right. Unfortunately, this vindication does not include medals. They do not make any change to any of the final standings of any of the international competitions that were affected by Leistungsportbeschluss. So on paper, she's never going to rank up there with the Katie Ledeckis, with the Dara Torreses. She She doesn't have the medal count to do it. But there is some recognition that's going to finally come her way. In 2004, the U.S. Olympic trials are going on. It's the first, like, big American Olympic gathering since that court decision against the Manford men. And they have this big banquet, and she is the guest of honor. This is, like, 12 years after her last interview, which had been with Sports Illustrated. I highly recommend seeking this out if you can. It is an interview of both her and Cornelia Ender. That's how I found out a lot about how bad Cornelia Ender's life went when she ran afoul of the Manford men. There is one last little thing that she gets. Maybe a mea culpa by the IOC. I find this is, this is kind of funny. I mentioned earlier that in 1983, Evolve was honored by them. Well, in 2005, Shirley Babishoff does also receive the highest honor of the IOC, the Olympic Order. So she's got one too. She's as important to the international sport as Manfred Evolve, the guy that doped up 10,000 child athletes. But you know, it's, it's all about quantity versus quality. She did enough in one lifetime to match what he did to 10,000 lives. That's a great way of looking at it, Savior. (laughs) The last thing I want to leave with is a quote by Rowdy Gaines. He was a male American swimmer, and he was coming up during the peak of Babishoff's career. He would have all of his competitions follow after her. She was very much an inspiration to him. He was the main person that invited her to that 2004 luncheon. A quote that he has in an article about it was, We think you're one of the greatest legends in our sport, and we don't think you've gotten your due. Just recently turned 65. She'll be turning 66 pretty darn soon. Her birthday is coming up this month. Maybe she's retired from the Postal Service. Pretty hard to find out. She's still reclusive. But if that is the case, I can think of no better retirement gift than induction into the Hall of Guy. Shirley Babishoff denied as many as 10 gold medals in international competition by anabolic steroid-using East German women. We can finally right these wrongs and we can give her perhaps an even higher honor than that Olympic order, which is a spot in our hall. And she will not have to share that order with Manfred Ewald. Before we do anything else, can we just ban all Manfreds from the hall? (laughs) I'm trying to think off the top of my head if there's any Manfred that I don't (laughs) hate. And I can't think of any other than these three. It's not a common name. So uh, like if we come across one, then maybe we have to make a, an exception at that time. But for right now, Diaz, I think that's an excellent idea. Xavier, any opposition? I mean, I'm, are, are there any Manfreds? Manfred? Manfred? Are there any that we're forgetting that, like, don't suck? 
Can't think of any right now. I mean, we could preemptively ban all Manfreds, and then if there's a a specific case, we can possibly bring it in on a case-by-case basis. But yeah, I can't think of any Manfreds that aren't bad people. Rob Manfred, Manfred Evald, Manfred Hepner, Diaz, would you like to do the honors? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, you're, you're innocent until you're proven guilty. You're Manfred until you're proven guy. All Manfreds are banned until further notice. The Manfred Banfred. A topic for a later episode, but perhaps Manfred, like we've been looking for what is the opposite of a guy? What is the antonym? It might be Manfred. We'll, we'll circle back to that one. But no, I, I, love, I love the presentation on Shirley. I love a classic 80s trope, you know, those evil communists, and especially when she's proven right. To me, she's, it's, it's like she exposed Ivan Drago is like how vindicated I feel hearing at the very end that she's proven right. There's the, the element of tragedy and that she should have had more titles. She was right before people thought she was crazy. What's the word for that? We can say ahead of the curve, but... Uh, right, ahead of the of, curve. Yeah, that kind of Cassandra prophetic ability to know what's going on and be cursed to have no one listening to you. Right. Whatever that word is, let's call it a Babishoff now. I know <laughs> well, we've got a task at hand now. We need to consider all three of these. We can take full stock of where we stand. I want to start for a moment with our boy Juan Manuel Marquez. Love the story. I love that we start a rivalry with three knockdowns in one round. And yet somehow this rivalry is going to go three and a half more fights altogether. Like that's incredible. However, the one thing that I got to say to you, Diaz, you, however long ago, really convincingly sold me on Oturo Gotti and Mickey Ward as like the greatest fighting rivalry of all time. And now you're trying to sell me on a new greatest fighting rivalry of all time. Let's be very specific. And if we pull up the tapes, I think I'll be proven right. I might not be. But <laughs> I believe my exact terminology was greatest trilogy in boxing history. This is not True. a trilogy. True. This is a quadrology. Quadrology. I guess that's what it would be. I think, tetralogy. I think it is tetralogy. Yeah. Tetralogy. The greatest tetralogy in boxing history. Quadrilogy is used too, so I will say that. But it, it, the Greek is tetralogy. Either way, we agree that these two hold that. Okay, that definitely, that knocks off one of my cons. Any thoughts on either of the other two from you, Xavier? So I really like Donovan Bailey because I like the idea of America being so America that we refuse to let a Canadian have the title fastest man in the world, despite clearly being the fastest man in the world. And we had to make a gigantic show out of it with a lot of snark and just terrible advertising. It was, it's the most petty American patriotism thing that I have ever seen. And then Donovan Bailey kicked Michael Johnson's ass so bad on international television. So I do love that. I also really like Shirley Babishoff because I like the idea that it was, hey, are you seeing what I'm seeing? Look at these people I'm swimming against. Look! And no, everyone's like, ah, you're just being a sore loser, surly Shirley. Oh, wait, you're right. They were doped up on drugs from a young age. And that's why they looked like brick houses. I never would have guessed that. Wow. Xavier, I have to push back on one point. Because you can say it's the most absurd display of patriotism to get behind Michael Johnson, even though he was quite literally slower than Donovan Bailey. It is very absurd. But we all lived through the Freedom Fries era. I, I got to say Freedom Fries is worse. 
personally. I agree with everything else. Yeah, but th- this was purely about sports. Freedom Fries was like a mixture of a couple different things. Mostly potatoes in hot oil. <laughs> you can also look at this like long drawn out press campaign between the two of them. Hey, at the end of the day, Michael Johnson and Donovan Bailey were creating jobs there, man. They were giving a huge economic boost to a lot of people, including the Blues Brothers, who I've been thinking about this whole time. That's after Belushi dies. Like, this is not the OG Blues Brothers. It was before the Blues Brothers 2000 movie, but that came out in 98. So best case scenario, it was Dan Aykroyd and John Goodman who come out in Blues Brothers 2000. Worst case scenario, it's Jim Belushi and Peter Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's brother, because sometimes for Blues Brothers things, they would just have the brothers of the two original Blues Brothers record all their lines because their voices sound kind of similar. Sorry, that's just been like on my mind this entire time. I think the guyest thing about Donovan Bailey for me is he's literally sitting on his couch watching an international competition thinking to himself, I could do better than that. And then he does. <laughs> it's Diaz every time he's watching watching basketball. I can hit that three. Listen, you stick me in a corner and you give me five feet of space, I will give you 35% three-point shooting over the course of a season. I will give up 80 points in 10 <laughs> minutes on the other end. But if you give me five feet of space, I will be a league average three-point shooter. But Donovan Bailey, I think that's a great point, James. And while I'm still like very much in the camp of Shirley Babishoff, one thing I do want to say as someone on the gender spectrum is a lot of the language that is used about the East German women who are absolutely doping does mirror a lot of the language we hear now about people who are not doping and are just like human beings who have different levels of testosterone, like Castor Semena. Yeah, Castor Semena. And, you know, all of the issues with trans athletes competing. So Or intersex athletes. Exactly. There, There is that element to it. While she's absolutely right, it does just suck to hear lines that could also come from The Guardian today. Uh, we don't want to necessarily be similar to that rag. That being said, I think it's between Bailey and Babishoff. I'm, it, I'm, in, the, I'm in the same boat, so no, yeah. no disrespect to Marquez Diaz, but if James and I can both go for Babishoff or Bailey, I think you're going to be the decider because I can be swayed either way and I want to hear you prefer out of those two speaking of freedom fries you're the decider you decide what's best well speaking of freedom fries you know i could just freedom caucus this shit and vote for marquez <laughs> you could. what i want <laughs> now we're gonna be on this for 14 more rounds 14 more episodes uh no i will adhere to like basic reason and logic <laughs> what a concept in this country as we speak about a country that made every possible effort to not allow Donovan Bailey to be the fastest person <laughs> in the world. Right. And I mean, I think that's kind of what it comes down to for me is I think America has gotten enough wins. And I think I need to go with the guy that trolls America. Cause I mean, that really, that, that, that speaks to me a lot. I, I think as we get older, we, we get really tired of like the American hubris and it's just persistence and consistency in the face of like all evidence and all, all credit to Shirley again. I, yeah. Like if we're saying it gets too many wins, she's like the one case of that not being true. The, the most frustrating thing to me as a competitor, I can, the, the two most frustrating things I can think of as a competitor, Shirley's case, I'm not competing on a level playing field. It's not fair. Or on Donovan's flip side, like the most annoying thing when I play pickup basketball 
is sometimes you'll hit the game-winning shot and the person's like, no, you didn't. Your, your foot was on the line. Oh, that I called a travel back here. Oh, it doesn't count. You didn't actually win. And like that's that frustrates me a lot. And that's me just like playing at like a local neighborhood basketball court for nothing other than like my own leisure and enjoyment. And Donovan Bailey is competing on an absolute world scale, dusting Michael Johnson. And USA's like, yo, you're a little bitch. See, the USA was a sore loser because they had done so well at the 100 meter for so long before this. I mean, they had Carl Lewis and they got shut out on the podium for the 100 meter. So instead, it's like 100 meter, what we cared about more than anything, this doesn't exist anymore. We don't care now that it's a Canadian who won. We don't care. But but you know what? He's actually the sore loser because he's complaining about us not caring. But we never cared in the first place. Now, is he enough of a sore loser to get a nickname like Surly Shirley? They got the Bailey's Fine Wine. uh, Uh, Yeah, actually, (laughs) Bailey's Fine Wine is also very good. I also, so one thing I've been thinking of lately with this is like, I try to think of like, what's the one sentence statement that we make for like this guy? Like, oh, that, that guy that X, you know what I mean? Marquez is that guy that knocked out Pacquiao. Babishov is that guy that was right about the East German athletes. I just like Donovan's the best. Remember that guy that trolled the shit out of Michael Johnson? <laughs> that's just my favorite guy statement. So I, I, I think that's what I go back to. It also gives us an opportunity to like have this historical record of the moment where the continent of North America is slowly losing its 100-meter dominance before it comes over to Jamaica. But for one second, we have this guy that is the perfect Venn diagram of continental North America and Jamaica. The more we talk through it, the more I think this is Donovan Bailey's to lose. Well, I think with that, we have a consensus. Diaz, would you like to do the honors? Of course. You know, it's my great honor to... Welcome into our illustrious hall, our neighbor to the north, but also from the Caribbean, the world's fastest man, unless you are too slow to understand that, as was most of America. But it doesn't matter. It's not about how fast you get there. It's about where you end up and where Donovan Bailey is ending up is the Hall of Guy. Welcome, Donovan. From the couch to the Olympic podium, to the Hall of Guy. What a journey. Please feel free to bring all the chickens and goats that you want to the induction ceremony. Speaking of goats, it has been another phenomenal discussion of great athletes. Perhaps greatest of all time? Probably not. I don't think any of these three can claim that. I'm just looking for a segue, much like a mall cop. I want to thank you all once again for listening to us. We want to thank Don Ham for our excellent theme music. I want to thank you guys for an excellent and lively discussion about guys that love flipping off their opponents in whatever way they can. Any last notes as we head out here? We might have to get Mr. Medicinal on to talk about what's going on in the WWE soon. I don't the know Saudis what's happening. The are going to have home. everything, man. <laughs> They're going to have fucking everything. They're going to have Cristiano Ronaldo. Wait, hold on. Thought of one last thing that's making memories for me. Cristiano Ronaldo petitioning a country to let him live with his unmarried partner, the mother of his children, rather than marrying her. What an absolute sack of shit. Listen, he's just not sure what he wants to commit to at this point. He's kind of going with the flow. It worked, though. Yeah, I guess it did. I guess it did. It did work, and I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Officer Brody said in Jaws, we're going to need a bigger guy. Uh, that was a good one. <laughs>